Hello, friends, and welcome to another moment, a Black History Moment with Bo. And today is going to be a great day for you. The house is quiet. You have your earphones on, and it's just you, Bo, and our history. And if you are a first-time listener, I say welcome. I say stick around for a few minutes, and I guarantee you will learn something. And time is never wasted when we learn something, right? And although you probably have never heard of them, I'm going to tell you the story today about the Golden 13. Paul Stilwell is an historian and a retired naval officer. And he brought this story to light about 16 sailors of African descent that were thrust into a situation not of their own making during World War II, set up to fail and absent that happening, placed in positions where their proven leadership skills were obscured by the racial animus of the day. Despite having to endure indignities no white officer would tolerate, no housing, denied access to officers' club, white sailors refusing to salute, no combat assignment, these men ultimately set the entire American military on a course toward increased black participation across all branches seen today. But the path from then to now reflects a journey not yet complete. At the beginning of World War II, black sailors served as cooks, waiters, and valets for white officers and were not allowed to enlist in the Navy's general service. It was not until the spring of 1942, under pressure from First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt and black civil rights leaders, that President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed an executive order banning discrimination in the federal government, thus allowing blacks to pursue jobs like gunner's mates, quartermasters, or signalmen. Shortly after, the idea of Black Officers Training Program was born. Sam Barnes, a 28-year-old Ohio native, walked the mile from Camp Robert Smalls, the Black-only camp at the northwest corner of the station, to the main offices and found several other Black men waiting. He recognized a few faces, but most were new to him, and none could say why they had been summoned. Commander Daniel Armstrong was the white officer in charge of the black camp, a man whose willingness to work with African-American enlistees earned praise from the higher-ups in Washington. Do you know why you're here? Silence. Well, the Navy has decided to commission Negroes as officers in the United States Navy, and you have been selected to attend an officer indoctrination school. The statement 
was matter-of-fact. Unemotional, Armstrong did not congratulate, he did not encourage. He made no comment about historical significance, and yet his simple sentence marked one of the most radical decisions the Navy had ever made. Officer positions in the U.S. Navy had previously been off-limits to black men, and these 16 enlistees had been summoned from training schools and shore installations across the United States to break that color barrier. They were going to attempt to integrate the officer corps. For the 16 men, the stakes could not have been higher. There were nearly 100,000 black men in the Navy. If any of them were ever to wear an officer's uniform, if any were ever to command a ship or graduate from the Naval Academy, if any were ever to lead white men in battle, then these 16 would have to succeed. These men, who before the war had been metalsmiths, teachers, lawyers, and college students, the children and grandchildren of slaves who had seen family members lynched and had been denied jobs because their skin color would have to prove that black men had the temperament for command and the leadership qualities necessary to wear the gold stripes. My friends, the story of the Navy's first black officers the Golden Thirteen, remains untold, overshadowed by the heroics of the Tuskegee Airmen and Patton's Panthers. But their success, both as candidates and as officers, forever changed what was possible for African-American sailors and anticipated the coming civil rights movement. Americans may have fought against racism abroad during World War II, but one of the most consequential battles in the war for equality took place 35 miles north of Chicago in a Spartan barracks that held 16 cots, 16 chairs, and one long table. The decision to train black naval officers was a culmination of a four-year campaign that began alongside the country's preparation for war. When President Franklin Roosevelt in 1940 called upon the U.S. to become an arsenal for democracy and defend democratic ideas, he was referring to gunships and planes. Civil rights leaders and activists heard a call for something less tangible, but no less critical, equality. From 1940 to 1944, thousands of Americans marched and protested, wrote letters and signed petitions, beseeching their congressmen and begging the president to let black men serve equally in the U.S. Navy. How could the United States preach and defend equality around the globe, they asked, and yet discriminate so outrageously in its own Navy? Even Americans' war enemies, the Japanese, claimed that the so-called freedoms America exposed were for white men only. Racism existed throughout the armed services at the time, but the Navy 
whose leaders feared mixing races in close quarters aboard ship could disrupt and damage morale, was especially hostile to people of color. The first black army officer graduated West Point in 1877, and by World War II, the army already had a black general. The Navy, on the other hand, had suspended enlistment of blacks altogether from 1919 to 1933, and at the start of World War II, still denied black men entry into the general service, refusing to train them as electricians or machinists and insisting they work as messmen where they were limited to serving meals and shining shoes. When the civil rights leaders demanded fair treatment, they were confronted with an intransigent bureaucracy that far more concerned with efficiency than with equality by a Navy secretary who was certain that integration would bring disaster and by admirals who were adamant that worthy black men could not be found in the whole United States. But in 1943, Adlai Stevenson, a special assistant to the Secretary of the Navy, Frank Knox, and later two-time Democratic presidential nominee, sent a memo to Knox recommending the commission of a dozen or so black officers to respond to the political pressures. Thus, in January 1944, 16 black sailors began their officer training course at Camp Robert Smalls Recruit Training Center, Great Lakes, now known as the Naval Station Great Lakes in Illinois. Although there is scant official documentation outlining the selection process, Stillwell surmises that the men's proven proficiency as enlisted leaders, their willingness to accept discipline and follow orders, athleticism, and a range of educational achievements matching those of white officer candidates were possible factors in their selection. Even though Great Lakes was one of the Navy's elite training facilities, the trainees were segregated from both white officer candidates and other black enlisted men. With this 16 cots, 16 footlockers, and a table set for 16, Barracks 202 was both home and classroom for the men. In this claustrophoric environment, they crammed a normal 16-week officer training program into eight, studying seamanship, naval regulations, and law, gunnery, and aircraft recognition. Retired four-star general and ex-secretary of state Colin Powell, who wrote the foreword in Stillwell's book, stated that history has dealt them a stern obligation to succeed and help open the blind moral eye that America had turned on the question of race. And my friends, these 16 black men decided rather than compete they would pool their resources so all could succeed. The white instructors 
were indifferent to the black officer candidate's plight and worked hard to make sure they washed out of the program. And the officer who designed their course work, Lieutenant Paul Richmond, was particularly hard on them. The white officers thought it was their mission to fail the candidates. Richmond said he just wanted to make the course as rigorous as possible. He was aimed at creating a better seagoing naval service. To some, he operated in good faith, and others found him to be condescending. Nevertheless, with the odds stacked against them, the men remained laser-focused on their collective success. Each night after the 10.30 p.m. lights-out call, they would cover the barracks windows with bed sheets to shield the light, huddle in the head, which is Navy talk for the bathroom, and study by flashlight. In the end, their strategy of group success resulted in high test scores for all 16. When the Navy challenged the validity of the scores, the men were forced to retake the exam, scoring even higher the second time and earning an average score of 3.89 out of four points. Rock on, my brothers, rock on. In March 1944, despite all 16 members passing the course, only 12 were commissioned as ensigns, and one was appointed the rank of warrant officer. Three candidates, Lewis Williams, J.B. Pinckney, and A. Alves, were not commissioned and returned to the fleet. No official reason was ever made clear for their rejection, but some speculate that the group's success rate could not exceed that of their counterparts. You feel me? Are not going to let it be known that they outdid whiteness. So after two months, and to little or no fanfare, the U.S. Navy Officer Corps expanded by 12 commissioned ensigns and a warrant officer, all black. But you know, Still, there was no way these highly qualified, highly motivated new officers would ever see combat. The Navy would not have black men commanding white men in battle. Instead, the first black officers were given make-up jobs, running drills, giving lectures on venereal disease, and patrolling the waters off California coast in a converted yacht. They were ignored and disrespected at every turn. Still, they knew they must keep their heads held high. They had a responsibility to be the first, not the last. And they were not. Two months later, a new group of 10 more black officers were commissioned. They too were given assignments that segregated them from the rest of the fleet, training black recruits, manning harbor tugs, and the like. All but one of the original officers left the Navy, choosing to pursue opportunities in the civilian world. 
Nelson remained in the Navy, retiring at the rank of lieutenant commander. After the intense shared experiences of the Great Lakes base, the men known as those black naval officers went their separate ways. The Navy had reluctantly made officers of the men, but it wasn't going to accord them any special treatment. For many years, they had no group identity. That changed in 1977 when Nelson tracked down the surviving members of that first class of officer candidates and hosted a reunion in Monterey, California. It was there that Captain Edward Seacrest from the Navy Recruiting Command coined the term the Golden Thirteen. In the spring of 1994, a federal agency held a forum where Paul Stilwell and several of the surviving Golden Thirteen members spoke, said retired Admiral Michelle Howard, also former vice chief of naval operations. To a person, they were humble and sincere and were all surprised to meet a surface warfare officer who was a woman of color. They rightfully saw me as their legacy, and I found them inspiring. My friends, African Americans comprise 13% of the U.S. population, but roughly 8% of the naval officers are black. According to the 2019 report by the Congressional Research Service, it's not simple unconscious bias. Some in the Navy don't like working for a black person or minority, and they don't like having one be their supervisor. So there you have it, my friends, the untold story of the Golden 13. And we thank these brothers for their contribution to equality. We thank them for every stressful moment that they had to endure to prove that we were able and we will always be able if given the chance well my friends that music tells me that it is once more that time but before I go I will leave you with this thought not everything that is faced can be changed but nothing can be changed until it is faced Until next time, it's been my honor.